Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast with me, your host, Cindy Parker. I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day, and I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This week, I sit down with Pinchas Shear, who is the Associate Professor of Ancient Cultures at Israel Bible Center. Sometimes with my students or even in casual conversation, I find that there's a lot of confusion over who's who in the Second Temple period. So I asked Pinchas to speak to us specifically about the complexity within Judaism at this time. Pinchashir is one of the contributing professors for a course that is called The Jewish Christ, First Century Diversity. So he is the perfect one to sit down and help us clarify some of the confusion. There are a couple things to recognize. The first is that Judaism reflected in the New Testament is different from the Israelite beliefs reflected in the Old Testament. Yes, they share key core dogma, but the Israelite beliefs evolved and changed to adapt to the changes of society, and those changes influenced the diverse Jewish views in the Second Temple period. The second is that even the groups we talk about here can be finessed even further. So by necessity, this is going to be talking about the big picture. In the next couple weeks, we explore the diversity that developed within Judaism, who people are, where they came from, and what they believed. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on all of the good episodes that are to come. It is just so fascinating. As for this week's conversation, I thought we should start with a super complex question that sounds very simple. What was Judaism like in the Second Temple period? People have strange notions about Judaism because whenever you say Judaism, you think of something really developed, something very specific, something very organized and kind of uniform. And that's really not the case at all in in antiquity. And so it took centuries and centuries for us to get to this cohesive form. People equate Judaism with Old Testament. That is the enormous thing. Like they read the Old Testament and say, right. well, that's Judaism. And, and right. it's not true. Yeah. It can't be. Exactly. It, just, it would be the same as I would, you know, equate New Testament to Christianity. I mean, there are myriads and myriads and thousands of things that Christians do that are not in a New Testament. Okay. Right. And right. vice versa. There are thousands and thousands of things in New Testament that Christians do not do. We yeah. never even think about doing actually, you know. Yeah. But they're in there and and because they look at that and they say, well, that's how it was, but that's not how it is now. And so this is the same thing with, you know, people read the Old Testament and say, oh, that's Judaism. And they read New Testament and that's a Christianity. That's just such a wrong way to look at it because neither one are lining up. Judaism is a tradition. Uh, In fact, it's a whole blend of different traditions and ways of life, you know, that are diverse. 
And then the same thing with Christianity, who says that there's, you know, one, this is Christianity and this is not Christianity or something like that. You know, there's different varieties out there and each one of them has a right to be called that in, in its own respect. So same thing with Judaism. So I like to talk about Judaisms, and I know that doesn't sound really, you know, well for pe- for a lot of people, but that's really what it is. Just like when we talk about Christianity, a lot of times we have to say Christianities, in the right. sense that there's different varieties, there are different movements. The one that ends up being the more dominant one is the one that we end up knowing better and we and thinking all all along that that's how it always has been and and it hasn't and yeah. so the same thing with Judaism there's a lot of diversity there's a lot of variety a lot of dissent you can look at life in general at any time at any point you know look at the history of a country and see how many movements that it goes through before it solidifies into something cohesive you know right. uh, I mean, I like it. I like, you know, history of America, for example, you know, when Puritans come in, they set things up. I mean, they forbid celebrating certain holidays because they deem them to be pagan, which all Americans are happily celebrating today. But like, if I was telling people that (laughs) these things were forbidden, you know, by the early settlers, and I would say, these are the first Americans, the, the colonists, you know, the founding fathers of this country said that this holiday should be forbidden, and they actually find you money. I mean, things like that. And, and, and you would say, wait a minute, yet we're yeah. doing that today in, and celebrating the past and doing all those things, assuming that this is how it always yeah. has been. Right. It's like that with Judaism. It's like that with Christianity. Yeah. There are movements that in one particular time, this is unacceptable. It, in one particular time, this is ridiculous and scandalous. Right. And then time goes by and that's actually the norm. When we're talking about religion, especially when we're talking about Bible, we do think exactly like you said, that things are kind of frozen in a particular time. Like this is how you do it. And then people did it exactly that way. And we forget the influence of context and society and the events of history that have happened. And there's such a huge difference between the Israelite religion and then Israelites going into exile and then coming out like that. It's such a transformative event. And so we should be expecting that post-exilic beliefs would be different than pre-exilic beliefs. And there's a lot of cultural intermixing that happens all throughout history that we tend to ignore because we think of cultures being just kind of within themselves, cooking within their own juice, which it's not how it is. We borrow from each other. We influence each other. We learn from other people. And and then we take what we've learned and we improve and transform it in our own ways. So there's a lot of that going on. So this is one of the things I really appreciate about your course. And I think especially the, the unit that is on first century diversity is so important. And the way that it is set up in your course anyway is, uh, I think you have this quote, all siblings share traits yet are different from each other. And then you go on to talk about 10 siblings of Judaism. I wonder if people would be surprised at the fact that you have 10 different ones that are listed, but that just speaks again to the diversity of Judaism during the second temple period. And so given the fact that there are 10 that you talk about in the course, why do you think it is that most of the time when we're talking about the diversity of Judaism in first century, we only talk about four? There's a famous quote by Josephus uh, that talks about the main, what he calls them philosophies. 
essentially. Mm. He's, you know, Josephus is writing to a Roman audience, trying to explain to them Israelite world, Jewish world. And he says, well, Jews have four main philosophies. Right? So he talks about the Pharisees, he talks about the Sadducees, and then he also mentions the Essenes, and then he does mention the Zealots in a kind of a roundabout way, but I don't really want to talk about them. Why? Because it's a sore issue. The zealots are the ones who stir up the people to war. And the last thing you want to talk about is talk about a bunch of Jews who are rebels who are trying to resist the Roman government. Especially when he's writing to the Romans. He's writing to Romans. <laughs> he's trying to paint a very nice picture of Jews. How we're nice. Okay. We're good, reasonable people. You right. know, we're pious. And then we have a bunch of these instigators who really want to stick it to you guys. <laughs> So, yeah, so he's not very fond of the zealots. But from that quote, you know, of Josephus is very famous, is where people focus on these four major movements. And, and it's a good way to talk about them. Why? Because these groups were significant and influential. And, and that's why we should think about them as being sort of, say, the main core of the, this diversity that existed. They were not the most numerous. Uh, surprisingly, but they were certainly influential. And if we're going to hmm. have a defined cohesive groups, then those, those groups are easy for us to focus on because they're defined. So let's put it that way. How many religions do we have in the world today? I don't know. I can't possibly count them how many religions there are. But how many yeah. religions are actually influential and people would ever meet and experience and be affected by? Well, that I can actually count them probably on one hand because mm -hmm. there are dominant movements out there that affect our lives most people in this world would have met a Christian or a Muslim, maybe a Jew, you know, a Buddhist, maybe a Hindu. But if I'm going to start talking about some other religions, like how many people have met somebody who practices Shinto or something like that? And right. that would right. be very few people. So this is the same way uh, with uh, movements, religious movements, religious groups. Some are larger, some are more influential, some are smaller, some are less influential. Doesn't mean they're not important, but it's who is dominating is the question. So we will always hear about the groups that are more dominant, more powerful. They have more say. And so as we read the pages of the Gospels, that's who is in a mix of mm. most of the time. But then there's others in the background as well. There's a very important period of history that exists uh, between uh, the book of Malachi and the pages of Matthew. And so a lot of times people call that the, the silent years, right? And they were anything but silent. I know. I hate that term. I hate that term. I know. I know. That, 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 so they're anything but silent. These are not silent years. God does not stop conversating with people. Right. He doesn't stop revealing. You know, he just stop, doesn't stop hearing right. prayers and answering them. So these things happen. It's just the fact that we, what we don't have canonical books, let's put it that way. And, and if somebody was to say silence, you know, and silence in the sense of the prophets, you know, there's there's no words of prophecy that are being written down, no oracles or anything like that. It doesn't mean God doesn't speak. It's just we don't have these official messages that are given to us. In that period of time, there was actually a lot of religious activity and there was a lot of development in the religious life of Israel. And that's where these groups really come from. There's a lot of political changes, social changes that happen, geographical, geopolitical shifts all the time. And all of that forces new things to come out, new hopes, new ideas, new religious fervor and zeal that comes out of that. And as you may imagine, IBC has courses that include the details of this intertestamental period. This is critical background to know that will completely change how you read and understand the Gospels. 
I covered the history in the Listening to the Land of the Bible Part 2 course, which is just about to be released. So you can be among the first participants in that class. And in that course, we talk about how the history reverberates throughout the Gospels and helps us understand Jesus as the revolutionary character that he was. I'll put a link to that course in the episode notes because everyone needs to be aware of how significant that history was. In fact, all the references Pinhas is about to make to Hanukkah and to the Maccabees, they all come from this significant historical time period. For example, the story of Hanukkah is not really told uh, in on the pages of the New Testament. Why? Because it already happened. It's the past, you know, and it's not told on the pages of the Old Testament because it hasn't happened yet, right? So it, it falls into that period, and it, and it's a it's a great story. It's an important part of history to know to understand what was happening in Israel. If we are to read the books of Maccabees, for example, we learn that there's these groups that are emerging out there, and one of them are called the Hasidim. Okay, we don't really know who they are, and let's not confuse them with the Hasidic movement of the 18th century. We're not talking about Hasidic Jews you know, who right. wear black hats and suits and things like that and white shirts, you know, we're not talking about that. You know, Hasidim are these pious Jews uh, who are essentially a group, a, a class, a, a subgroup of people who are very concerned with piety and being responsible, sort of say, by following God's commandments, while the culture tends to swing more in this lackadaisical, let's just do whatever we can let's uh, not make life hard way where there's a group of people that are pushing in the other direction. They're saying, no, we have to stay true to the government. We cannot compromise. While the whole world is going that way, we're going the opposite direction. Can we say that part of that is in reaction to the exile, the trauma of exile? And so there's almost a, let's recalibrate, let's make sure this doesn't happen again. Do you think it, it yeah, follows on yeah. that let's, experience? Suffering, persecution causes these things. When yeah. you press somebody hard, some people give in, other pe people push back. It's the age-old fight-or-flight response. Some people run, some people give in, other people fight back. So the Hasidim, the pious ones, are a group that emerges that they, they basically resist the cultural move towards Hellenism. They resist the cultural move towards assimilation. And it's a very strong cultural move because everyone wants Israel to join the League of Nations and to be like everybody else. But we know the Torah says Israelites can't because if the moment they do that, they're not faithful to God, they're not faithful to the covenant, and the whole purpose of Israel existing is gone. So that's what the story of Hanukkah is about. It's about the fight of restoring independence, giving people the ability to follow the path that God has laid out before them versus just kind of being led by the other nations in direction right. that is destructive, really. It's it's something that's going to destroy the people as a as a distinct, uh, you know, people group, uh, leading them away from God's path. So stories like that, when we read them, we see religious movements emerging. The Maccabees themselves are like the zealots who are, who are rising up, who they're revolutionaries. They're, they're not going to stand by. They're not going to just allow anybody to come into their country and dictate to them everything in life. Right. No, they fight back. So Hasidim, the Maccabees, out of these groups come the Sadducees and the Pharisees that we know. They are the precursor groups, let's put it that way. For the sake of this conversation over the next couple of weeks, we will talk about the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Qumran sect or the Essenes, 
and then the zealots. So there are so many more groups of Jews, which is why you need to take the course to dive into all of the other characters. This week, Pinchas and I talk about the Sadducees because I find there is so much confusion about who these people are and what they represent. So I asked Pinchas to explain where this group originated from because they're not in the Hebrew Bible. They seem to just show up all of a sudden in the Gospels. Who are these people? Sadducees are small, small group, elite group. Most people would not meet a Sadducee on an average, everyday kind of basis. Their life is around and about the temple. Most of them would be priests, aristocracy, related to the priestly lines, intermarried with priestly families. These are wealthy people, influential people, powerful people, people in government, ruling class, essentially. And even if they were not priests themselves, they would be aligned with the priestly type interests. And they would look at their spiritual experience, let's put it that way, where they find God is within the temple service, within its rites and rituals, within its order, within its decorum, and everything that goes on. There's a tremendous amount of sanctity that happened in the ancient temple. And that is where groups, a group like that, you know, Sadducees, would find their meaning in all things spiritual, sort of say. It, that is their core. That is what they orient themselves around. And, and that's how they see the life. They see life through the prism of that temple worship and coming close to God in the way that he ordained. Yeah. You know? and, and so the way they see their lives would be through, through that perspective. We were just talking about all the different ways that people are going to interact with Hellenism and mm-hmm. absorb the surrounding culture. Now, to what extent would the Sadducees embrace Hellenism and to what extent would they reject it? I mean, if they're focused on temple, it, you'd assume they'd want to reject Hellenism and yet they're aristocracy and powerful and governing, which makes you think maybe they absorbed Hellenism. So right. what, where do you think they stood on that spectrum? It's not much like different from today. Whenever power and money and influence and other wealthy friends from other countries and elites mix, there's going to be intermixing of ideas. In fact, there's not, you know, very few uh, people in ancient Israel would not have been affected by Hellenism because it is such a pervasive type force and it's in everything. It's, it's like saying, you know, people are not affected by uh, English or something like that. And I'm sorry if you use a cell phone or, inter- or internet, you probably are, you know, because you're going to type www, right? Which is, that's the English alphabet already. So it's like, it's like saying, I'm not affected by English language. And no, you are. And, and, and you can't get away from it. Uh, any piece of software you buy, any technology you use, whatever, uh, a book you pick up, anything. It's like so many things that are, you're going to be affected by it. And in some degrees you will come to embrace it in some ways you'll reject it so this is no different i mean hellenism is like that it's pervasive in so many areas so while we would think that somebody like priests will be old pious and following the old ways and and yet at the same time the very notion of how the temple was built does in some way resemble has some resemblance as to how uh, pagan temples have functioned so to say we borrow things nothing is 100% original pure you know, yes, God gave us these commandments, but then we found ways to adapt them to make it 
work, you know, sort of say with how the rest of the world works as well. And and God looks upon us, I guess, in his mercy and says, you know, that's okay. This is how they know (laughs) how to make it work. And and so there's a lot of grace and mercy even in that area. So, uh, you know, there's always, as human beings, and this is just the human desire, we always have a desire to be accepted by others. Yeah. We don't want to be different. We know we should be sometimes, but it's like, well, we don't want to be because we want to be accepted, want to be loved. We want to be understood. We want to be appreciated. And a lot of times out of that very basic human desire comes out a certain degree of smoothing things out to make sure that other people understand us, see us in, in the light that we want to be seen. Because in the end, we want to be accepted. And the same thing with the Sadducees, uh, being wealthy, being powerful, being elites. Elites cannot stay elites unless they're collect- connected to other elites in other countries. They network. They do these things. And in order to network, they have hmm. to behave in ways that would be acceptable to other elites. And so there's always going to be a degree of compromise involved. And, and, and so that, that is no different with Sadducees. Do we have writings from the Sadducees, do we have a description of themselves from themselves? Or are we only looking at what we know from the outside? That's that's the amazing part. We really don't. It's not like Sadducees left us a rule book or, or some scrolls where they've written their own bylaws or something like that. We don't have that. What we have is a tiny bits and pieces of information that we grab from various places and we try to reconstruct their ideology. And that's not always fair. I have to say this you know, to people, and I explain this in a course of that. It's not fair to look at somebody else's caricature of your beliefs. And then you're saying, okay, that's what these people really like. You know, well, the problem is we can't ask them what they were really like. So right. we're actually asking their opponents, the people who actually don't like them, to f- define those you know, those Sadducees. So Sadducees are defined by their opponents for the most part. That is where we get all the information we have about them. And and so we have to clean that up in a sense and be a little bit more objective and say, well, yes, of course, this is how a Pharisee would see somebody like that. But let's think about objectively. Let's look at the other side of the coin, you know, and that's where a more fair picture can, can come out. But we don't have their own writings to go by. So we have to rely on second and third hand information essentially to construct what they were really like. When it comes to Hebrew Bible writings, what of those writings did the Sadducees hold on to? Like where did they find authority of scripture? What would they attribute that to? Sadducees were um, kind of very tight to the Torah. They they were by the book kind of uh, people. To, I mean, if you think about it, them they were quite rigorous in applying Torah in, in various ways in their life. Of course, this is where we find all the laws and commandments that have to do with the temple and how right. the temple should function. So clearly, that is that is what they go to. And so the five books of Moses that is their primary source. That's what they would all look to, and then, and that they share with every Israelite out there. Okay, mm-hmm. however. Right. Uh, there are plenty of people over there who also look to the prophets, and Sadducees did not really care much for the prophets. And the reason is, is very simple. All the prophets do is call you back to the Torah. That's really what the prophets do. And so uh, the way they looked at it, I'm like, well, if Torah is more important than the prophets are just pointing back, so then we just stick to the most core important information and we'll be okay. You know, we don't really need the prophets. It's like looking at a commentary. We don't need the commentary. 
we have the actual <laughs> scripture. Yeah, so they weren't huge on the prophets. Uh, while uh, other Israelite movements looked deeper into the prophets and found more insight, more revelation, you know, deeper meanings, more sort of say, greater knowledge of God, even in the revelatory type way. And, and so those who read the prophets obviously would understand why. But also keep in mind that in, in, in those days, this, this is just part of the diversity. They, they decided to stick to the Torah, and they, they would always argue with anyone who opposes them, well, the Torah says this. That's their go-to document. So they're, they're different in that respect. I love being able to kind of flesh them out as real people and figuring out where their priorities were because it it just helps us make more sense when it helps us pay attention to where Jesus was when he was interacting with Sadducees and he was often in Judea and in Jerusalem and somewhere Mm -hmm. around the temple. And it's just those little details that helps us realize, oh, this is why he's not arguing with them up in Galilee. He has a different audience in Galilee. You know, and Sadducees wandering the hills of Galilee. That's just not going to happen because that's not their domain. That's their area. So yeah, and and this is dynamic. And most of the time, Sadducees will be talking to Jesus. Guess what they're going to be talking about? The temple, the right. sacrifices, things that you know right. concern them, and things that he's concerned about as well. Frankly, but that's right. what, they're going to focus on the things that interest them, and, right. and that's what you're going to see in the gospel. But but sometimes people simply fail to understand how much of that is in importance to them, versus, for example, you know, Yeshua looks at those questions and. He takes the Pharisaic side a lot of times, where he says, you know, chesed, God's mercy, his loving kindness, his mm. grace is greater and more important than all sacrifices. Now, a Sadducee hears that, and he's like, no, no, you cannot <laughs> say that. <laughs> right. Why? Because that undermines the very core of everything my life is all about. Right. right. You can see how that could be a problem. Now, we don't talk about it here, but we do discuss it next week. And I wonder if you're already curious about the detail that we left out. Everybody knows what the biggest difference between Pharisees and Sadducees is the relief and resurrection. So why don't Sadducees believe in resurrection? The answer is very simple. Do you know the answer even before Pinhas tells us? If you do, send us a note on Facebook at Israel Bible Center or on Twitter, which is at Israel Study. If you like what you hear in this podcast, you can enroll in the course using the link in the show notes, or you can explore all the other courses available to you with one small monthly subscription. Don't forget to take advantage of the free material you receive by using the coupon code ISRAEL when you register. It's really just a special thank you for listening, subscribing, and telling others about this podcast. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all of the good sounds you hear. And thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible. I look forward to next week.